Thanks, band, and good morning again, and welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, like Peter and Ellen said, uh, we're glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Um, unlike what Peter and Ellen said, I'm actually not going to pray through those blue cards this week, because I'm on vacation. So this is our, uh, our one trip this week, or this summer, out of, uh, out of state. So I'll pray for you a week from Monday, if it can wait that long, um, otherwise... I don't know, you can email Peter or another leader here and ask them to pray for you. But, uh, but we, like they said, we do love praying for you, and it's a, it's a great thing that we're able to do. So anyway, uh, right now we're in a sermon series in the book of Acts. It's a New Testament book. It's written right after Jesus' life, death, resurrection. Uh, actually, the very beginning of this book speaks about Jesus post-resurrection, and he meets with his disciples, and there's uh, he, he sends his Holy Spirit into them, and he ascends, and now he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father, and now the church is born. Now, these disciples, uh, now with the Holy Spirit in them, now with the gospel message, because Jesus has died and risen, uh, died for our sins and risen, um, they now spread this gospel all across the ancient world. And we're uh, over halfway done with the book of Acts, where we pick it up right now, is that, uh, like Peter said, there's this team of people. Uh, the main two guys are Paul and Silas. And right now they're going through the ancient world. Right now they're in Greece. And they're going from city to city, uh, preaching the gospel. And like Peter said, they get rejected by many. Also many receive this gospel. A new church is formed. A new community of faith is formed. And then usually uh, this crew gets kicked out of the city by some type of persecution or, or opposition. And we're going to see that again in our passage today. This morning we're going to be looking at Acts 17 verses 1 through 7, or 1 through 9, uh, and we're entitling this sermon, The Upside Down Kingdom of Jesus. And uh, I could not come up with a great Stranger Things uh, joke to go along with this, so if you're waiting for it, it's not going to come, sorry. But we're going to look at uh, Jesus, the original one who said upside down, um, and we're going to see how Jesus' kingdom is completely different than the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Caesar and the, the, the beauty and the power and the importance of that. So we're going to be reading from Acts 17, 1 through 9. You can follow along in your uh, insert in your uh, worship folder, and it's also going to be on the screen behind me. So let's start. Speaking of they, this is talking about Paul and, and Silas and the people that are traveling with them. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they, all acting, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. 
All right, so now we're in a new city. We haven't been here yet before. This is the city of Thessalonica. So, so far in the past few chapters, we have been up here in Philippi, and then they've kind of taken this path. Now we are, uh, the setting of today's story is in Thessalonica. So if you see, this is kind of zoomed up version of here. So right now we're in modern day uh, Greece, and as you can see, uh, Thessalonica was a large port city. It actually was the capital of Macedonia. So if you remember a few weeks ago, when uh, Paul was about to set out on this journey, his second church planning missionary journey, he got a, a vision saying uh, from someone in Macedonia saying, come help us. And so we've actually now reached the capital of Macedonia, uh, the second largest city in ancient Greece at this time uh, with a population of over 200,000. So an enormous, enormous ancient city. And the first thing Paul does, which is his custom, he does this all the time, is that he goes to a synagogue. So if there is a large enough group of of Jewish people in a particular city that he's at, he first goes to that synagogue and preaches to them because there both was a a set-up time in the worship service at a synagogue where a, a traveling rabbi or another teacher could speak up and say something, as well as they have a lot of common background beliefs, right? The Christian religion came out of the, the Jewish religion. And so Paul would often do this. So in this new city of Thessalonica, Paul goes there. He preaches and reasons and teaches and explains for three straight Sabbaths. And then uh, these are kind of the main things that he says to the people here. And uh, we'll talk more about this in, in just a second. But Paul essentially reasons and argues that the Messiah or the Christ, so Messiah is the, the Jewish word, Uh, Christ is the Greek word. Paul's arguing that the Messiah needed to suffer, he needed to rise from the dead, and that Jesus is in fact this Messiah. So that's Paul's message that he brings to the synagogue in this new city. So definitely related to this, but before we jump into our passage today, uh, what I want us to briefly talk about is how we need to be incredibly careful, especially as Christians, we need to be incredibly careful about anyone who messes with these important things. That uh, Jesus was the Messiah, that he had to suffer, that he really did die, that he really, that he really was risen from the grave. When teachers, pastors, authors, professors, when they mess with these things, these core doctrines of our faith, Jesus' death and his resurrection, and that he was the Messiah, we're getting really close into the territory of false teaching and heresy. You might be thinking that's a bit overstated, or why is Spencer so grouchy about this? But it is just really important. So we're going to see, uh, take a quick aside for a few minutes, and then we'll come back to our passage, and we'll see how these are related. But note, uh, so Paul, we're going to read about this church in just a few chapters. So Corinth is another city. Paul and his team eventually go there. They plant a church. They write a letter back to this church. And in this letter, Paul defends and defines the gospel. And uh, at, the, at the end of this part, we're going to read this in just a second. The last few lines, uh, most people think that that is, the one, or that is the very first church creed, or the very first like memorizable few statements about what Christianity really is all about. And people think that this creed was actually probably written and memorized and spread just a few years after Jesus' life. So it's the earliest church creed. Many think that it was the Jerusalem Council. We've been learning about them uh, earlier in Acts. So the church in Jerusalem, just a few years after Jesus' resurrection, came up with this creed that is kind of the, the foundation, the central, the core, 
the non-negotiables of what the Christian faith is. So let's look at what Paul says the gospel is, and we'll see why this is so important. So Paul's writing back to this church in Corinth, and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter, the apostle Peter, and then to the twelve. So right off the bat, we see that Paul says that this is the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is, we say that word a hundred times a sermon, uh, the core of the Christian faith. If you want to know what the gospel is, Paul defines it for us here. He calls this the gospel, and he describes it both simply, right, in just a few phrases, yet incredibly profoundly. He also says that the gospel is good news that transforms our lives. Not just our future life, not just it only gets us to heaven. The gospel doesn't just transform our former lives as if it only or just uh, gives us forgiveness for sins from our past, but rather the good news of the gospel, it transforms our past. It says we've received, you speaking to the church, you have received the gospel. It speaks to our present, he says, in which you now stand, and it also speaks to our future. You are being saved. And so we see the gospel's good news for our entire lives, our past, our present, and our future. Note, too, that Paul calls this first importance, right? When he describes the gospel, he says, this is not secondary. This is not debatable. This is not like a buffet, and you get to pick and choose what you like. This is of first importance. So let's look at this. What what is this early church creed? What exactly is the gospel? We're going to boil it down or simplify it. What exactly is the gospel? What is first importance that the church especially and then individual Christians as well must believe, must hold on to, must cherish ourselves, and must tell others? If we're truly Christian, what, what, what exactly does that mean? And we see, yeah, these last few verses starting with uh, that Christ died for our sins. So we see these things in this early church creed. First, we see that Jesus died. So the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully human, literally died. It wasn't symbolic. It wasn't figurative. His heart literally stopped for those three days. His brain stopped functioning. His body began to deteriorate. The God-man died. Second, we see that it was for our sins, which is incredibly important. Jesus died not just to show us the greatest version of love, although it was the greatest version of love. Jesus didn't die just or only to defeat Satan and sin and death, which he did, but it wasn't just that. Jesus died for the problem of our sin. He died to redeem us back from being slaves to sin. He died to defeat the power of sin over our lives. He died in our place so that sinful humanity could have the opportunity for forgiveness for reconciliation to God, and for eternal life. Jesus died for our sins. We'll see this unpacked in uh, more in just a little bit. Third, we see that Jesus died for our sins to fulfill 
the Scripture. The whole Old Testament is speaking about and anticipating and prophesying about and pointing ahead to Jesus' death for our sins. Christ and his death on the cross fulfills prophecy, fulfills anticipations throughout the Old Testament. It fulfills promises as well as he's the fulfillment of so many of the different uh, festivals and, and systems put up in the Old Testament. Things like the sacrificial system, the Passover uh, festival, the Sabbath, the temple, the priesthood, and we could go on and on. Jesus died for our sins to fulfill the scriptures. Number four, we also are, are reminded that he was buried. There was a dead body. It was literally put behind an unmovable boulder, sealed with a Roman seal to tell people if they mess with this rock and that dead body, they'd be executed, and then guarded by trained professional Roman soldiers. There was a body, and Jesus' dead body was buried. But the story doesn't just stop there, right? Number five, this creed reminds us that he was raised. God raised him from the dead on the third day, also according to scriptures. But none of this stuff in number four that the Jews and the Romans set up could stop Jesus. God raised him from the dead, a physical, bodily resurrection, never to die again. And then six, he appeared to the disciples. And actually, if we keep on reading from 1 Corinthians 15 there, it says he uh, not just showed himself to the 12 disciples, but also to hundreds and hundreds of more people. Jesus appeared in his physical, resurrected body, let people touch it. He spoke to them. He taught them. He helped them understand what just happened with his death and with his resurrection. He told them about the coming Holy Spirit. And then he sent that spirit and then left to rule and reign in heaven with God the Father. So this is the gospel right here. This is the gospel that literally is turning the world upside down here in Greece as well as has continued to turn the world upside down for the past 2,000 years. So church, especially speaking to Christians here today, if you're not a Christian, this is the core of our faith, right? Don't get hung up on uh, the, how long creation took or what Jesus' second coming is going to look like or how to do baptism or communion. Those are important, but don't get hung up on that. This is the foundation of our faith. So let me now talk, especially to Christians here. So when you're listening to a sermon, when you're skimming an article, when you're hearing a podcast, when you're talking to someone, ask questions about what people believe about these things. Are they messing with Jesus' death? With what or why he died? Are they messing with his resurrection? Are they saying it was just symbolic or that it was just uh, a dream or that it was only metaphorical or that he really didn't die? Obviously, people who don't believe Christianity attack all six of these, right? But even uh, people within the church, even so-called Christian authors and, and leaders mess with a lot of these core, um, these core doctrines, these core beliefs. So I always be asking uh, these types of questions. If this kind of scares you, if you're kind of thinking like, really, there's even Christians, people within the church, even pastors, authors, bloggers that disagree with these foundational things, just remember the whole book of Acts, we've seen opposition in every single city, right? Even though it's true, even though it's glorious, even though it's people who literally saw the resurrected Jesus telling other people, there's still lots of opposition. There's people teaching against it. There's people lying. As well as the rest of the New Testament, 
is all, pretty much all letters written back to these churches. Almost every single letter by almost every single one of those authors writes back to these churches and says, there's going to be false teachers. Look out for wolves. Look out for people who are messing with these core doctrines, which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians is saying, guys, don't forget the first importance. Don't forget the core foundation of our faith. So as Christians, we need to ask, our, we need to ask these questions when we hear any type of teaching. Even ask this about people who are teaching and preaching here at Hiawatha. Make sure that we also are not messing with these foundational truths. So ask yourself, what are these people, uh, what's this author, what's this preacher, what's this podcaster, what are they saying the problem in the world is? Is it sin, death, separation from God? Or is it just that we don't have enough knowledge or that we have to work just a little bit harder? Also ask the question, what are they saying that Jesus came to do? Or why did Jesus die, right? Did he only die as an example, which is very popular? Did he only die to defeat Satan and sin, which is also very popular? Or did he die for those things, but most importantly, for our sins? And then flowing out of that, it defeated Satan, and it was a great example for us. We need to ask ourselves, is this person teaching are they saying that the Bible is all about Jesus, climaxing in his death and resurrection, fulfilling the scriptures? Or are we the hero? Or is the Bible just a bunch of good advice for us that kind of gives us good ideas on how to live in this world? And then finally, did he really die? Did he really physically die? And did he really physically raise from the grave? Great questions. We have to constantly be asking. And I want to encourage us to continue to do so. All right, so back to our passage. So now Paul shows up, goes to a synagogue, preaches and teaches for a few Sabbaths, telling them that the Messiah needs to suffer, that the Messiah will be raised from the dead, and that this Messiah, this Christ, is Jesus. So let's start with the Messiah needs to suffer. So Paul shows up and tells them, okay, Jewish, good Jewish people at this synagogue, you believe in God's promises in the Old Testament. You believe that God's going to send a redeeming, saving king that is going to once and for all defeat God's enemies and usher in God's kingdom. You believe in that. Let me show you. Let me show you how this is actually Jesus Christ. Let me show you that you thought that the way that this king was going to rule and reign and win was through victory and through destroying Rome or some other oppressing land. But Paul says, let me, let me show you how the way that this king, this Messiah, this Christ was going to rescue and save us would actually be through his apparent defeat. His salvation would actually come through suffering and death. There's a ton of places we could go to see this uh, in the Old Testament, right? So if Paul's arguing with Jewish people that believe the Old Testament, he's going to use it. Um, but Paul probably went to place like Isaiah 53, which we're going to look at. We've actually even seen this Old Testament uh, passage um, earlier in Acts, if you remember the story where there's an a Ethiopian who's reading Isaiah 53. He just can't understand it. And then the Holy Spirit brings Philip, one of the disciples there, and Philip's like, what are you reading? And he's like, Isaiah 53, but I don't get it. And then Philip says, let me tell you about the gospel and how everything you're reading about is fulfilled in the God-man Jesus Christ, who was just crucified and was raised from the dead. So let's look at this great prophecy. 
uh, back in the Old Testament that the Jews would have believed and trusted in that speaks about the Messiah, this Christ, this rescuing king coming to suffer. That the way he was going to win was through suffering and his death. Written hundreds of years before Christ, speaking both what the Messiah would do as well as what he would accomplish through his salvation and, and how he would go about accomplishing it. Isaiah 53, uh, speaking of this future Messiah, this future Christ. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our punishment for our peace was upon him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, and we have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So Paul's arguing the Messiah, this Christ, here in Isaiah 53, called the suffering servant, he would suffer. He would carry our sickness and our spiritual disease. He would enter in and carry our pain on his shoulders. He would take our punishment that we deserved. He would be struck down. He would be crushed. He would be pierced. He would be punished so that humanity would have peace with God. He would be wounded so that others may be healed. He would anguish. He would carry hum humanity's iniquities. He would submit to death. He would be counted among the rebellious. He would bear the sins of many. And he would intercede on behalf of us, rebels. So Paul argues that the, the Messiah, the Christ, that he must die in order to be our substitute, that the suffering servant must suffer in order to pay for our sins, to ransom us back from slavery and sin and death and for justice to be done. And then Paul continues his argument. He says, not only must the Messiah suffer, but he also argues that he would also rise from the dead, defeating death, defeating Satan and sin, vindicating himself and demonstrating, showing that he is the one true king of the universe, never to taste defeat or death again. The Messiah needed not only to suffer, but he would also be raised from the dead. We saw this preached about even earlier in the book of Acts. When Peter stands up in front of thousands of people and uh, back in Acts 2, uh, he, he looks back at one of the Psalms at King David, so the greatest king in all of his, Israel's history, uh, David. He wrote this Psalm, and if you, if you know about King David's life, he was given a promise by God. God promised King David, greatest king in Israel's history. He says, David, someone from your line, one of your descendants, will rule, and he will rule for eternity. So then in Acts, right after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, says, hey, we finally understand what's going on back there. Jesus is this king from David's line who will reign forever, who won't taste death, 
but rather that we'll be resurrected and, and, and live forever. So we read back in Acts 2, Peter picks up on this and he says, uh, King David knew that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of King David's descendants on his throne. King David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he would not abandon, he would not abandon, that he would not be abandoned? Was not abandoned. Uh, to Hades, or to death, to the place of death, nor did his flesh see corruption. And then from there, Paul argues the Messiah must suffer and the Messiah would be raised, resurrected by God. And so Paul argues by saying, which one of the Messiahs has ever done this, right? Which, which one of the people that has come into Israel and said, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king, who has ever done this? Who has ever suffered like this? And who was ever raised by God, resurrected to never taste death again? No one, except for this Jesus, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, Paul was arguing. Jesus is the one who, in his life, demonstrated miracles, signs, and wonders, commanding nature even to obey him, and raising dead bodies, proving that he was from God. Jesus is the one who fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. He is the one who called himself divine, who said that he was one with God. God himself in flesh was executed because of that. Jesus is the one who, is, who experienced everything described in Isaiah 53 through his betrayal, his torture, his unjust condemnation, and his execution on a cross, taking the sins and the iniquities and the spiritual disease of the world onto himself as he died the death that we deserved. And Jesus is the one who, in doing this, gifts us his perfection, his righteousness, his cleanliness to all those who believe in him. This Jesus, whom I pro proclaim to you, he is the Christ. He is the one that our, you and our people have been waiting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for. And so what was the result of Paul's preaching? What was the result of, of his persuasion telling people that Jesus really was this Christ? Just like it was in every other city he's been at, there is both reception and rejection. So how do people respond? Actually, Luke picks up on this or writes it this way. He says, some were persuaded. Some believed. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, who were probably also a part of this synagogue as well, and a few of the leading women, who were uh, Greek leading women, who are also probably a part of this synagogue. And so we see here in today's passage that people are converted in a different way. Just like last week, if you remember, we saw three different conversion stories, uh, all three converted in different ways. So to be very clear, we're not saying uh, people get saved via anything besides the gospel, but rather the gospel is like a diamond. It has multi-facets, and different facets or different aspects or different parts of the gospel will be especially attractive to people or persuasive to people, or that's going to be what God uses to melt their heart and to open up their eyes and to believe. So different people have different needs, right? Different people have different problems. Different people value different things, and so, different aspects of the gospel are going to be attractive to different types of people. And so, here we see, and probably more than just this is happening, but here we see 
Luke focus on another way that people are, are uh, converted, are saved. They are persuaded that Jesus really is who he said he was, that Jesus really is the Messiah. So this time, Luke focuses, oh yeah, so these three characters we saw last week. This week, what Luke chooses to do is he chooses to focus on uh, Paul using persuasion, especially uh, using persuasion from the Old Testament, right? So back in Philippi, there was no synagogue, so the way that people were saved there was, was actually not through a synagogue, it was through um, other different means, same gospel, but here there's a synagogue, and so he's preaching using this common text, this uh, same background knowledge that this group of people has, and is arguing that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice, too, all these uh, types of words that uh, Luke, the author, chooses to use. Reasoned, explained, proving, proclaiming, and persuaded. So the gospel and the Christian faith are not only intellectual. So if you just read this passage, you might think, oh, it's only the smart people, the, really, the intellectual, the, 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 the worldly, the, the people with great knowledge that can actually figure out Christianity or understand the gospel. And we've seen all throughout Acts, that's just not the case. The gospel is simple, and it is for everyone. And at the same time, though, the gospel is also not anti-intellectual. Paul here, in this particular city, reasons argues, persuades using history, using logic, and this Holy Spirit uses that to save many in this city. So obviously the gospel is simple. You don't have to be brilliant to understand it, nor do you have to be incredibly wise or articulate to share it. So don't be discouraged right now thinking, Ugh, I could just never share the gospel because I'm not brilliant like these people or I'm not very articulate. Don't worry about that. We can still share the gospel with others even if we're not articulate or wise. We actually even see at the beginning of 1 Corinthians uh, where Paul speaks of the gospel as something that usually the intellectual and usually the powerful reject. They think it's stupid. They think it's foolish, and they want nothing to do with it. So just to kind of round out our understanding of the gospel and how people are saved. But since here in our passage today, you, Luke uses this type of language uh, we're going to talk about how we can use persuasion and reason and proofs in order to share the gospel with others, just like Paul did here in Thessalonica. So Paul reasoned, he persuaded, he expounded, he proclaimed the gospel to this Greek prosperous city that had many Jews in it. And we too, both as individuals and corporately as a church, need to do the same thing in our city. We likewise are called to show our friends, our families, our neighbors, our coworkers, this truth, this powerful, and the beauty of the gospel. So we need to ask ourselves. We need to ask ourselves these types of questions, right? If we want to persuade people who don't believe in our lives, if we really believe this is true and the best news this world has ever heard, we want to share it with people. So we need to ask these questions: What is going to persuade our friends, family, coworkers, neighbors to believe? We need to ask these questions. First, what is persuasive to, to those people in our lives, right? If someone is maybe faced with death, if they're going through disease, if they've just lost a loved one, then they're probably thinking about death. They're probably thinking about eternity or what happens after death. And so speaking about that, speaking about heaven, speaking about death, Jesus defeating it, is probably going to be more persuasive to them than if you're trying to do the same argument with someone who's young and, and healthy and has no suffering or 
no death in their life at all. Also, you know, another example of this could be someone who's consumed with self-hatred or they have uh, deep wounds from their past. A person like that, hearing that in the gospel forgiveness of sin is possible, hearing that there's a new identity that can come that erases our past, that might be incredibly persuasive and incredibly beautiful news to them. And maybe that's what they need to hear more than just what happens when you die. So we have to ask our question, these questions. What is, what is going to be persuasive to those in our lives? We need to also ask, what do they already believe? What is the starting point, right? Are they already spiritual? We have lots of people in our city who are very spiritual, yet not religious or very uh, open that there's a spiritual realm and spiritual things? Or are you talking to someone who only believes in a purely naturalistic view of the world? And so depending on what that person is, you're going to have very different ways of trying to persuade them. Or also in our city, we have many people who are de-churched, which just means they have some experience with the church, whether they went to a VBS once or they were maybe uh, confirmed or their grandparents brought them to church for a while or something. And we also have many people in our city who are unchurched, who literally know nothing about Jesus or the Bible or about the way that Christians practice their faith. Depending on where this person is coming from, that's definitely going to change and how we speak to them, and how we persuade them. And the final question we have to ask, which is really important and takes a lot of hard work, we need to ask the question, what is good news to them? What is good news to them? Or what does salvation, or what does heaven look like to them? And I'm not just saying, is it, is it heaven? Is it nirvana? Is it, uh, you know, Val, Valhalla? Uh, I'm not saying that, but rather saying, what, what, what are they putting all of their work, their time, their energy into? What, what is the goal of their life? What are they trying to achieve? And a lot of people, they really think, you know, hey, I'm just trying to make the world a better place. Okay, so salvation for me is being a good human being. That's, that's going to make my life meaningful and worth it. Or what is heaven? Well, I'm trying to make heaven hue on earth by, by, you know, fighting against pollution or passing certain laws or just being a really kind neighbor or whatever it might be. So as we ask this question, we're essentially asking, what are people putting all of their faith into? What's giving their life meaning? What are they hoping will happen by the end of their life? What are they working tirelessly towards? And I'll just fly through these uh, in just a second. But essentially, people are, are trying to fill their life. They're seeing salvation as these things, or they're thinking, if I can accomplish this in my lifetime, then I'll have reached I mean, they're not going to say I've reached heaven, but they're saying that my life has meaning or it's worthwhile. So all these things on this left, these great values, these things that our, our people in our lives are putting, uh, are tirelessly putting all their life and their time and their energy and resources into, we can show them on the right how the gospel is the best version of that or how what they really want, the only way to get that is through the gospel. And so we can persuade them that what you really want is a good thing but let me tell you about how it comes. It comes through Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. So people fight for peace, whether fighting against war or just peace among people here locally. We can tell them that not only can that happen through changed lives, through the gospel, but we can also have eternal peace, not just between us and Russia or us and Iran, but between us and creator God, whom we're enemies against in our rebellious state. You want to have meaning? You want to have identity in your life? Well, true meaning, true identity can come through the gospel. 
You fight for human rights, which is a really great thing, but we can show them that human rights actually came out of Christian doctrine that says that all humans are created in the image of God. Not purely secularism or a purely naturalistic worldview that says the fittest survive and that's great. But if you really value human rights, let's, let's see how people eventually got to uh, thinking that this was just the common value that everyone should have. And it comes through Christian doctrine of, of all humans being made in God's image and deserving of love and dignity. Maybe you fight for freedom and we talk about how freedom ultimately comes through Christ. Maybe they highly value nature. We can say, hey, let me, let me introduce you to the one who created all of this great beauty and how in uh, the new, or, yeah, let's just keep going on. You, you love art. Let me introduce you to the ultimate creator, the ultimate designer. You're fighting against racism in your life, a really great thing, but let me tell you how there is a God who is reconciled to his enemies and how through that we can actually truly love people who are different than us. So you want to fight racism by just shaming people? Well, that only kind of works, maybe just a little bit on the surface, but there's a way that we can actually love people who are very different than us and actually forgive people who have hurt us horribly. So the motivation can actually change and uh, the gospel can truly and, and fully fight against racism or inequality or and we could just go on and on and on. The gospel is the better version of all these great yet lesser values that our world has, that we have. So essentially what we want to do is we want to get people to a point where they say, I really wish it were true. I really do value peace, and I can see how in the gospel, the best version of peace, that's, that's a way better version than what I'm trying to do. Or fill in the blank with any one of these. We want, our pe we want people to, to, we want to be able to persuade them so that they can say, I wish it were true. I don't believe it is, because I still think you believe in, in myths and, and fairy tales. But man, it really is beautiful. Your version of all these great values that come through the gospel, these are really great. And finally, we actually don't see it here, but we actually do see a little bit later on in the New Testament, a way that we're going to persuade those who don't believe in Jesus yet is going to come through relationships, by, by showing people this same gospel lived out in our lives and generosity and kindness and love. So Paul writes back to this church. So at the end of our passage, he gets kicked out of the city. Later on, he writes a letter back to this church, and he describes his time with this church. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So even though we don't see it in Acts, one of the huge things that the Spirit uses to persuade many people in this city to believe is Paul and Silas and their actual lives. The gospel working in their lives and seeing Paul and Silas not just yell at them and say, believe that Jesus is this Messiah, but they also worked their butts off to not be a burden. They, they showed holiness and righteousness in their life. They loved these people like a father loves their children. And from this we realize, and this is, we all just know this, it's, it's evident, it's 
self-evident in our lives, is that people come to Christ, especially in the context of relationships. Especially now, living in 2019, where everywhere we look, we're trying to be persuaded something. We're, we're just skeptical at heart, right? And so people are going to come to Christ in the context of community, he, hearing not just the gospel, but seeing the gospel played out in, in many different people's lives and not being able to deny it. So our story ends, our chapter ends here, not our chapter, our, uh, our story ends here with many belief. Uh, a church is planted, filled with Jewish people and Gentiles, Greek people, leading women of the city. The Jewish religious leaders get jealous, probably because lots of their people, lots of the people that donated to their synagogue are now leaving and joining a church, so they get jealous. They uh, start a mob. They get a bunch of thugs from the rabble, whatever that means, and they uh, start this mob. They bring it to the authorities. They tell lies, and they get uh, the whole city in an uproar. And as we, as we kind of begin to wrap up here, kind of go back to this idea of Jesus' upside-down kingdom, let's listen to what they say, what they accuse uh, Paul and Barnabas of, or Paul and Silas of. So this mob is now accusing them to the authorities. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And then they continue to talk about that. So probably they have heard about this Jesus movement. They probably heard about this gospel and how in all these other Greek and, and cities in Turkey and Asia and Galatia and all over the place are changing. How there has been uh, mobs in these cities as well as how there's just been tons of Jewish people converting, tons of Greek people uh, converting. So they probably have heard about this. But also, whether they realize it or not, this is actually really true. They're, they're meaning it as a, as a slanderous thing, saying like, hey, these are you know, people who are causing great commotion and problems, but actually, they really are turning the world upside down through the gospel. Yet, unlike what they're being accused of, the world being turned upside down, this new king, Jesus, not Caesar, they're arguing that this is a bad thing, but in reality, in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, it's very different. So they are turning the world upside down, but it looks way different than what they're being accused of. Yes, there is another king rather than Caesar, yet Jesus' rule does not mean revolution and violence against Caesar, but rather respectful submission to human rulers. So this, this uh, movement that is turning the world upside down is actually not a threat to Caesar. It's actually not a threat to Rome. This new king, his kingdom, looks nothing like Caesar's. And in fact, this new king's kingdom looks actually the opposite of the Roman kingdom. Jesus taught his disciples and his church to use their power, not for themselves, but for the sake of others. So unlike Rome and Caesar, Christians are called to look like Jesus when using their power, when they have power. Jesus taught his disciples, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And this is why, or this is what it's supposed to look like. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Tying back into what we talked about earlier, Jesus came to die for our sins, to give his life 
as a ransom for many. And the church is supposed to look like that. Christians are supposed to look like that. We're supposed to, when we have any type of power or authority or influence, we're supposed to use that for the sake of others, looking just like our Savior. But not only is power viewed differently and used differently in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, but it is also a diverse kingdom. It's not built up of wealthy, powerful Roman soldiers that kind of work their way to the top or, or landowners that all look the same and have all the same values. But rather, in Jesus' kingdom, it's a diverse kingdom. It's the wealthy and the poor together. It's the free and the slave. It's the Jews and the Gentile. It's the oppressed and the free. It's the formerly religious and the formerly pagan. It's adults, it's children, it's Asians, it's Europeans, it's Africans. It's the educated and the uneducated. It's the influential and the forgotten. It's the moral and the immoral. It's the successful and those who are down on their luck. It's the influential women of the city. It's the nominal Jewish synagogue worshipers. And it's the devout Greeks. It's a diverse kingdom. It's way different than any other worldly kingdom. Rebecca McLaughlin writes, she says, Contrary to popular belief, Christianity is the most, most ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically, and racially diverse belief system in all of history. And we're seeing this right in the first few centuries, right after Jesus' death and resurrection. No longer does your ethnicity or your power or your gender or where you live in the world really matter anymore. Now all are welcomed into Jesus' kingdom. And the third thing we see in Jesus' upside-down kingdom that contrasts with the kingdom of Rome or the kingdom of Caesar is that the low are brought high. We saw that in Jesus' teaching just a little bit ago, but we also just see it in our passage today. Women who are not treated very well are brought up and are leaders in the church, are seen as sisters rather than just as objects anymore. No longer, uh, at least within the context of church, uh, the church, in, in, in Roman culture and in, in here in Greece, no longer are Christians throwing infant uh, females into the woods to get eaten because they only value males. But rather, the low, the, the people who are seen as worthless or, or less important are brought high. We see it with women. We see it with uh, people in poverty. We see it with people on the margins. We see it with Gentiles who for thousands of years were kind of kept at an arm's length from God, but now are are brought high and our leaders in the church are respected and loved. We see the fools being made wise. We see the weak being made strong. This kind of reminds me of, of one of Jesus's really uh, backhanded <laughs> statements to some of the religious rulers in his life. So he's talking to the pastors, the seminary professors, the people that look on the outside perfect. And he says to them, he says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors, the people that are betraying and are betraying their old people, they're extortionists, they're crooks. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into my kingdom before you. The upside down kingdom of Jesus looks nothing like this world. We're all sinners saved by grace, entering into his kingdom through faith in Jesus' death on our behalf. Let's end with the opening of Paul's letter that he actually writes back to this church. So there's actually two letters we have in our New Testament. You can read them if you'd like. It gives a lot of context to what we just learned about today. But in the opening of Paul's letter, so he gets kicked out of the city at the end of our 
passage today, he writes a letter back to this church. And listen to how he speaks about, about this church, how much he loves them, and how he's confident that what the Holy Spirit started in their salvation, he will continue. So let these words that we read not just help us see how this story ends, which it will, and that's encouraging for us to see how the gospel saved many in that city in ancient Greece, but also let it encourage you to, to see that that same Holy Spirit, that same gospel is saving many in our own city as well, a city very similar to the ancient city of Thessalonica. That same Holy Spirit that brought power and conviction and conversion and salvation to hundreds in this ancient city is now doing the same thing here at Hiawatha Church and in our city. Let's close with reading the beginning of Paul's letter back to this church. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church in Thessalonica, it, uh, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you did this in this ancient influential city, and that the gospel spread like mad from that city all over the region, all over the world. But we also thank you you've done that here in our midst that you sent your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, that you uh, allow us to proclaim and to teach the same good news and that many, many believe. Many who are on the outside of society, many who uh, in our, our normal kingdom right here, right now, would, would uh, be down and out, but because of the gospel, because of your kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, they are now given new identities, new meaning. They're given a family. They're loved they are used by you in powerful ways. So Jesus, we thank you for this gospel that for uh, over 2,000 years continues to change hearts and minds and families and neighborhoods and cities and regions. We pray for more of that in our city, uh, even this week, God. We pray your spirit would breathe life all across this city and in our church for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.